0: Uh, We're in the uh, second half of a mini-series on 1 Corinthians. uh, And uh, chapter 13, uh, you heard it read beautifully by Diane this morning. Um, It's one of the best-known passages in the Bible, uh, but it's also a passage that is oftentimes misunderstood. When you read 1 Corinthians 13 as part of the larger book of Corinthians, which we've been going through a series on Corinthians, what you see is that far from, you know, sentimental poetry Paul is giving a harsh rebuke. You know, it's a certain kind of report card, really, where Paul's going through everything that uh, really the Corinthians should be doing right, but they're failing at. Love does not envy, but you're filled with envy. Love does not boast, but you're bragging. Love does not act ill-mannered, but you're rude. Love does not get irritable, but you guys are fighting all the time. So really, This little section, which we tend to read with such romanticism, um, is actually a report card. It's a hard-hitting rebuke, and Paul's giving a sobering wake-up, and he's saying, you're failing. Uh, You need to turn it around. You're getting a solid F in the Christian life, because being a Christian is to be a a person that's marked by love. But if you also look at it in the larger context, something else emerges. You know, in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul addresses the question of unity. We already looked at that. Uh, The Spirit gives to members of the church different gifts in order to bless and to serve others. And in chapter 14, uh, next week, uh, Josh will be back from vacation, and he's going to uh, look at how the gifting applies to corporate worship. But chapter 13 is really interesting. You know, if you're listening to a great symphony, at some point you start hearing the tune, you start hearing the little motif that is going to eventually be the crescendo, the climax. And in in chapter 13, in these verses, we begin to hear the first faint sound, that first little melody that eventually is going to be a part of the climax of the book of 1 Corinthians where Paul is going to talk about the resurrection life of Jesus, chapter 15, come back September 15th, I'm going to start that chapter, Uh, looking forward to that. Uh, so, so, what happens here in, in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 uh, to 13, is Paul begins talking about this vibrant powerful life and we actually see him beginning to go there in verse seven where he says love bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things and what we saw last week is paul's not saying that to be a christian is to be a doormat that just bears all things you know and just and to be naive i just believe everything whatever they tell me at church i just believe that Uh, sorry if you're from the south i didn't mean to go into a southern accent that wasn't good was it I had a girlfriend from the South one time, and one time I did that, and she was like, Why are you saying that that way? I was like, Okay. Anyway, no, the reason Paul goes into love bears all things and believes all things is because he wants to say that love is an unstoppable force, that love is a power at work in this universe that cannot be stopped. That's why I like the translation. Love never tires of support. It never loses faith. It never exhausts hope. It never gives up. Love never falls apart. That's verse 8. Love never falls apart. It never fails. That word fails there, it means literally it never falls down or collapses or disintegrates or fragments or decays. Love is not a transient thing. Love is not something that someday will pass away. Love is what remains. It has a power and a force. And so, what we see here is that Paul is giving us an ontology of love. That is a big word, ontology. It just means the science of being. Come on, folks. Didn't you do metaphysics and philosophy in college? Paul is giving us an ontology of love. Love is part and parcel of the resurrection life that one day will break out and has already broken out in Jesus. So in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's not giving us some kind of romanticism, some kind of sloppy, you know, oh, lovey-dovey-dovey, let's read this at a wedding. No. And he's not just interested in telling the Corinthians some ethics, some duty, "Be be good people, be loving. No, he's giving the Corinthians eschatology. He wants the Corinthians to live life in light of where the universe is heading. He wants the Corinthians to live life in light of where the universe is heading. He's saying love is not just your duty. No, love is your destiny. The whole universe one day will be speaking one language, the language of love. And the church is to be the place where people start hearing that language here and now because it is the destiny of this universe. It's profound, You see, Paul is saying that heaven is a world of love. So in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 to 11, we're going to take a look at what Paul does, how he sets us up. On one hand, he contrasts this current life, our current state of existence, with the world that is going to break out, that is already broken out, that broke out in the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning, and I always give you a map, here's your map. We're going to look at these two states of existence. First, Our current state of existence, and then the world to come. In order to drive home this idea that love is the enduring quality, the only thing that's going to endure that we see in our current life, Paul lists a number of ways our current state is transient and fragmented and incomplete and temporary. So we start with four things that Paul says about our current state. And the first thing that Paul says is our gifts have a shelf life. Our gifts. Have a shelf life. Look what he says. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Corinth was a place, as we've learned, it was a it was a massive metropolitan city. It was a a place that was a meritocracy. There was no old money. And there was a lot of gifted people throughout the Roman Empire that came into Corinth. And it was one of the places where you went to church, you thought, wow, there's some impressive people here. You know? There were some people with some gifts. And we know that there was people with gifts also, because People were doing all kinds of stuff. Paul lists them there, right? But the problem is, is that even though it was a gifted group, a a gifted body, they squandered these gifts. They didn't use them in order to bless and love each other. They used them, if anything, just to simply try to show off or try to get attention for themselves. And Paul says, no, don't you see these gifts have a shelf life? Use them before you lose them. If Paul was here this morning, he'd say, get over to the ministry fair, right, Natalie? Get over to the ministry fair, right? Use your gifts. Use them now, you will lose them. And every single one of us has gifts, but these gifts are temporary. These gifts are temporary. Then Paul says, our knowledge is complete and fragile. This is the second thing he says about our current state. Our knowledge is incomplete and fragile. Look what he says. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Knowledge was a big thing to the Corinthians. You know, in chapter eight, Paul reminds the Corinthians, "Hey, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies." They were all into knowing all these things, right? Uh, but Paul says, "Hey, don't you understand how fragile our knowledge is here in this world? Don't you understand uh, when he says that we know in part?" That there, that word there actually is piece by piece. So far from being impressed with each other's knowledge, um, we need to recognize. That our knowledge in this life is imperfect, we you know, listen. I, I can I can speak with authority as someone who, who who did some graduate work. All right, it's it's grueling, and knowledge is so fragile. And those of you who are in the knowledge industry, you know, it's piece by piece. You have to build, you have to work, you have to build. Oh, I was wrong there. I know a guy that he flew over to France to study this Huguenot village in order to write a chapter in his Ph.D. dissertation. He spent a year there. He came back, and then the professor's like, actually, this doesn't even fit with your project. (sighs) I mean, knowledge is a fragile thing, right? And so Paul says, hey, listen, knowledge is fragile. Our knowledge is fragile. Don't be overly impressed with what you know. And when he says piece by piece, he's also tapping into something really interesting. You know, from Parmenides to Hegel, philosophers have wondered how we can possibly grasp things that are perceived little by little within temporal processes. And Paul is actually using that same language. He's piggybacking on a long philosophical tradition that climaxes with Hegel's thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Remember that? And it just keeps going, right? And it never ends, and we're constantly trying to learn. So Paul is tapping into this, and Paul's interstu- introducing this idea of epistemic humility. So maybe you're a person that thinks you know everything, and you've got all your Bible verses, and you're going to pound people over the head. You're not like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was a person who had epistemic humility. That means Paul recognized the fragility of our knowledge in this life. And I love it when I meet Christians that get this, right? Thomas Aquinas, the great theologian, right? Towards the end of his life, while he was writing his Summa Theologia, had a, had a revelation, had a vision. He had a spiritual vision, and he put down his pen, and he never wrote another word. And when they came to him, they said, why aren't you writing? Why did you stopped?" This is what he said. He said, all I have written appears to be so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. You know, for a moment, it was broad daylight, and here was Thomas Aquinas with this little flashlight, and he went like this, and he just dropped his flashlight. You know, one day I'm going to be out of a job as a theologian, all right? One day a lot of you are going to be out of jobs too, don't worry, okay? <laughs> I mean, think of all the things we won't need someday, right? You know, one day our brightest sages in this life will be stumbling fools. One day Einstein will look like a kindergartner. You know, someday Terence Tao, the great mathematician, will look like a simpleton. Someday, Wittgenstein, people are like, whatever, dude, you're still drooling. You didn't even get it. You see what Paul is saying? One day, when heaven comes, we will be so bright and illuminated that our simple knowledge here will seem silly. C.S. Lewis writes, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you encountered them now, you'd be tempted to worship them because of their brilliance and their grandeur. It's humbling. The third thing about our current state, Paul mentions, we have a limited capacity to process life, all right? When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, there's two kinds of children. There's the child that knows that they're a child, and the child that doesn't know that they're a child. There's the, there's the seven-year-old that says, yeah, sure, I can drive a car, no problem. And then there's a seven-year-old says, I can't drive a car, I'm, I'm seven years old. Now, which one is more mature? The one that knows they can't drive a, a car. The problem is the Corinthians were more like that first seven-year-old, right? They thought that they had arrived. They thought that they, they finally had it. They had all these spiritual gifts. They were speaking the heavenly language. They knew it all. And Paul is saying, hey, listen, hello, wake-up call. I've got news for you. You haven't arrived. You don't have any idea what mature humanity looks like yet. We haven't encountered it yet. We've never seen what we will be yet. Paul's reminding the Corinthians that our entire way of processing life in this life is kind of like what it's like when you're a child. Remember when you're a child? You just can't figure stuff out. Like, the world is a mystery. The world's confusing, you know? I mean, you see children, and, and they try to copy what you know, maybe some athlete is doing or some musician or what mom's doing, and then they go to, you know, throw the ball, and it's so pathetic, or, you know, they, they pick up the guitar and just sounds like noise, or they try to bake something, and they make a big mess, and it's tragic comedy. That's why we love having children. We just sit back like, <laughs> no, not really, but, you know, it is kind of tragic comedy, right? It's funny. It's sad, and you can see sometimes the child kind of gets it. The, the good child, it's all like, yeah, I'm just a child. But it's sad when you see children they're really frustrated they know they want to mature right and so this is part of our own condition we find ourselves in lives where it's difficult to actually feel like we're living life as we want to as we can see paul says and this is what the bible teaches is that we live in between two ages christ has already come and he's introduced the kingdom of god but it hasn't come in its fullness this age is still here even though it's passing away so we're living in the already not yet. We're living between two ages. It's like a child that is in between two stages. St. Teresa of Avila said, in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. Man, have you had one of those nights in an inconvenient hotel where it's inconvenient that there's so much street traffic and it's inconvenient the air conditioning doesn't work? and it's inconvenient that there's somebody really loud next door, she's saying our entire life someday will just seem like that. Now, now, what, why, what is she doing? She's remembering she's a child. She's remembering, wait a second here, wait a second. I know it feels hard in this life. I know it's difficult, but look, I'm just a child. One day I'll grow up. I know it's, it's, it's tough sometimes, but this is just transitionary. This life is not meant to bear the freight of all of my hopes and dreams. And that's when we get stuck, it's when we think I'm never getting out of this hotel. Some of you this morning came in here and you're like, I'm never getting out of this hotel. Don't you realize this life is transition? This life is not endgame. First John 3.2 says, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Finally, Paul says, in this current state, our knowledge of ourselves and God is spotty. It's spotty. Look what he says in 1312. For now we see in a mirror dimly, and now I know in part. You know, Paul was a brilliant communicator, and mirrors was a good illustration for him to use because guess where they produced? Mirrors in the ancient world. Corinth. They weren't like our mirrors, okay? They were metal mirrors. And so there was always a little bit of darkness to them and disfigurement, all right? And so Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly. Now, this word dimly is really cool. In the Greek, the word is uh, uh, enigmati. And what does that sound like? Enigmatic. This is where we get our word enigmatic. And Paul is saying that in this life, we are an enigma to ourselves. When we attempt to see ourselves and understand ourselves, we are enigmatic to ourselves. We are limited in our ability to see ourselves. We have limitations and fallibility and indirectness of our ability to see who we are. I mean, have you ever thought, I thought to myself, like, gosh, I wish I could just stand outside of myself and watch myself for the day. There's so many things I would change. Little, I mean, my little gestures we have, our little, I get this weird, like, painful smile sometimes. Like, where did that come from? If I could just watch myself, I would Cut that out, right? But we can't, we can't do that. We can't be face-to-face with ourselves. All we have is this indirect knowledge. It's the enigma of ourselves. So our knowledge of ourselves is spotty. Not only do we have that kind of spotty knowledge, we have a spotty knowledge of God. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known, Paul says. Now I have a question, who fully knows you? There's only one being in the universe that fully knows you, the being that made you, the all-knowing God. God knows us fully, but our awareness of God is not full. It's partial. Psalm 139 says, there's no place where we can hide from God's sight. So God sees us all the time. God knows us completely. And yet, how often are we even aware of God's presence? So this is the current state we find ourselves in. Our life is transient, incomplete, fragmented. Our gifts have a shelf life. Our knowledge is fragile and limited. Our capacity to process life is simple and undeveloped, and we are often an enigma even to ourselves. We have a spotty sense of who God is. But it doesn't just say that. See, that's that's only half of the sermon. I got good news, all right? See, Paul says that someday the perfect will come. I love that. Someday the perfect will come. Maybe the most incredible words Paul ever penned. Paul says that someday we will grow up. That someday our full humanity will arrive. Someday we will see ourselves and we will see God clearly. A new world is coming. You see, this is one of the few passages in the Bible where Paul starts giving us hints about heaven, and it's incredible. It is so cool. Let's look at how he describes it: life in the world to come, life in the world to come. And Paul here is going to give us four things as well. Again, for now we see, uh, he starts off when the, I'm sorry, I skipped my notes. He starts off, when the perfect comes, this is the big one, when the perfect comes. This word perfect is just, this is, okay, again, I don't like to say, you know, well, if you knew the Greek, but this is one of those situations where, well, if you knew the Greek. Because the word is teleon, and there really isn't, I mean, this is what happens with languages. Sometimes there's just a word that doesn't work, you know? Um, a word in Dutch, chazim, you know? It's like, what does that mean? That, it, it, it doesn't really translate, you know? There's certain words. Well, this is one of those words that doesn't really translate. We say perfect. Okay, that's what we have right here is when the perfect comes. Um, but really, there's so many things wrapped up in this. When our design, our aim, our wholeness, our completeness, that for which our, our entire humanity aims, our maturity, when that comes, when I become a man, See, when everything we're yearning for and longing for, everything that we are designed for, when that thing arrives, then we are going to finally be able to experience life as it's meant to be experienced. You know? Probably the example, uh, and I'm going to steal this from one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, that I like the most, is the example of a beached whale. Janet, that's the beached whale. Oh, there, good. You are on it. Uh, the beached whale slide. There we go. Yeah. You know, look at these whales. You know, what is a beached whale? Is it alive? Well, not for long. You know, uh, you know what's it doing? Is it moving? Well, it's it's actually swimming. I mean, what's it doing? Is it's kicking sand all over? Right? It's just sitting there, but it, because it's trying to swim, but you can't really swim when you're a beach whale. You're out of your element. You're out of your telion. You are in a situation where. It's not really where you're meant to be, where all of your capacities are realized. And so, what happens? Your size, which in the water makes you so powerful, becomes a detriment. Your natural reflexes of swimming, those just get you frustrated. See, in its element, a whale flies. In its element, a whale just goes and cruises and does whaleness. But when it's out of its element, the whale's in trouble. It's frustrated. And Paul is saying that we are all beached whales right now. Look at us. Who denies it? Every single one of us is dying. There's not a person in here that is not dying. And look at our reflexes, our natural reflexes. You know, what do we want? We want unconditional love. You know, where do you get that? We want justice. No one's ever seen it. We have a longing for beauty. We cannot get enough beauty. There's more magazines that are going to come out tomorrow with more beautiful objects and things and places. We're never satisfied. We want to live forever. No one wants to die. Where do we get these reflexes? Where do we get these these instincts? Paul says, don't you see you were made for another world? Don't you see You were made to fly. You were made for all of your capacity and potentiality and your reflexes to completely manifest in another way of being. All of us are out of our element. All of us have not reached our teleon. We're missing it. And one day, those of us who are part of this resurrection life of Jesus will explode. We will explode. What else about this life of the world to come? It is a world of self-awareness. Paul says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, face to face. And first off, I just want to notice something here. Paul says we will have a face. You know, Christianity is not the only worldview out there. Christianity is not the only religion. We all know that. We live in a fragilized society where the person that's living on one side or the other has different viewpoints. But I want us to see something here, what Christianity says. Christianity says that we will have a face. You know, Eastern religions have good news and they have bad news. You know, Eastern thought tells you the good news is someday when you die, all suffering will cease. Someday when you die, all tears will be wiped away. That's the good news. There will be peace. Here's the bad news. The reason why all of your suffering will die is because you will not exist. The reason why there will be no more tears on your face is because you will not have a face you will simply be like a drop of water that goes into impersonal spirit and disappears. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that your distinct uniqueness, the thing that makes you you, is not something that will be disappear, it will not disappear from the universe. You see, we don't want to be lost. Eternity is not about us getting lost. Eternity is about us being found. It's about us being recognized. It's about us having our tears wiped away, our suffering removed. Revelation 21 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now we see dimly, but then face to face, we will no longer be an enigma to ourselves. We'll no longer be enigma to ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And let's face it, I mean, you know, you don't need to be you know, some kind of brilliant psychologist or read a billion self-help books to catch yourself in self-deception. Right? I mean, there wouldn't be such a thing as addiction. We wouldn't see all the things on the news if people were as clear about themselves as they are, uh, they think they are. We hide from ourselves. Um, we we have to work to see our hidden motives, you know. And and when you get when you kind of catch yourself, it's like shocking, isn't it? Like, oh my gosh, I've been doing that. What's my problem? You know, I've been to therapy, and I want to recommend it. it uh, we have some great Christian therapists in our in our church. And if you've been, um, here's something you're going to realize: if you've been or if you haven't been, number one, it's not instant. You don't show up, put down your money, and you know they just wave something over, and you're like, oh. I'm healed. It's not instant. It's a lot of work. It takes money. But if you have a good therapist and you work at it, there will be moments where you go, oh, well, that's why I've been doing that my whole life. Oh my gosh. Those little moments of revelation, you know what I'm talking about? You don't need to go to therapy to have them. Sometimes God is just gracious and you see it, but you're just like, wow. Sometimes a friend points it out like, hey, I, you know, you notice that you do do? And if you're humble enough, you receive it. Like, oh gosh, I guess I do that. And those moments when you're able to put the pieces together and you are no longer an enigma in that area of your life, it's like the light bulbs go on. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, here's what Paul is saying. Someday, all psychologists will be out of work also. (laughs) All right? Someday, we won't need psychologists we're not gonna need social workers are gonna help people you know, see things like, no, you really shouldn't do that to your child. That's actually called you know, uh, child endangerment. Like, we, there's, you know, we're not gonna need that. There will always be a need for psychologists in this, in this life, but one day, we will have an absolute, crystal clear awareness of ourselves. We will be able to see ourselves. But here's one other thing I want us to see. Not only will we see ourselves, but we'll be able to see each other. This word uh, prosopon pros prosopon in the Greek is so cool. It's such a beautiful picture. The great philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, um, the great phenomenologist of the face. This is a this is a Emmanuel Levinas loving church. I know all of you read all. Of, I'm just joking. But if you ever get a chance, um, you know, great philosopher, and he was one of the people that really spent time talking about what happens with the human face, what happens when you look into another person's face, the profundity of what happens when you look into another face. And he has this great quote, the face is present in its refusal to be contained. Let's put this on the bottom shelf. You cannot take a gun and kill somebody if you've actually seen their face. It's always faceless people that we commit violence to. It's always people that we put in a box, and we remove their face. That's why crowds are so dangerous, that's why mobs are so dangerous, is because the human face gets erased in that kind of social setting. And Paul says here that it will be prospon upon, pros, pros upon, that we will be able to be seen for who we are, and we will see other faces, face to face. What brings this ability to see and embrace oneself and others as they are? The Bible is clear. We come to know fully as we are fully known. And who knows you fully? It is God. How is this kind of capacity to see ourselves and to see others realized? We will look into the face that made all faces. We will look into the face that made all faces. The only way, once and for all, we will cease being an enigma to ourselves and reduce other people, is when we look into the face that formed all faces. We are made in the image of God, and until we accurately see the model from which all faces were derived, we will never be able to see faces aright. And we will continue to grieve shootings, we will continue to live in a world where we practice inhumanity to man. But the good news is, is one day we will see face to face. One day we will see face to face, because one day we will be able to see the face that formed all faces, and this is the beautific vision. This is the, the beautific vision. This is the Visio Dei. This is the face of God, and the Old Testament is a massive story about how mankind lost the face of God and how mankind regained the face of God, how mankind once had the Visio Dei. That's the picture there, right? That's at least some artist's rendition. And lost the visio day. You know, in the garden, we find that Adam and Eve are created and they're walking with God. They have God's presence with them. The face of God is accessible. And we know that we are made for the face of God. David in Psalm 16 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. But here's the problem we find in the Old Testament when people get close to the face of God, they start falling apart. They don't know what to do with the face of God. Job says, My ears have heard of you, my eyes have seen you. But now I retract my words and I repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord in his glory and in his temple. And then the next thing I did is I fell at my face. I said, oh my gosh, I'm ruined. Woe is me for I have seen him. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I can't show you my face. If I show you my face, you will not survive. This is the problem that needs to get solved in the Bible. How can we have access to the face of God? We are too finite. We are too sinful. So to be a human being is to be conflicted. The very thing that we long for, that we need, that we are created for, is the very thing that we can't get access to. The face that will once and for all help us to see ourselves and to see others aright because it is the face we need most. It's the the face that we long to have, see us, to know as we are fully known. So here's where the story takes a beautiful turn. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God has given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And yes, I put an icon up there. That's the Ponto Krater. That's from the Hagia Sophia. Because it is a scandal. It's even a scandal to us evangelicals sometimes. God had a face. God took on a face that we could look into. There was no other way to get access to this face, this face-to-face that we needed, the face that formed all faces. God in Christ Jesus has made the face of God available. Taking on the form of a servant, God in Christ plunged himself into this sinful, hate-filled, sinful world. God taking on a face made the face of God possible. And this leads us to our final, final uh, thing that is true of the world to come. Paul ends with this. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. I love it. You know, Paul ends and he says, faith, hope, and love, the three Christian virtues abide, but even in the end, faith and hope are just scaffolding. They will drop away. We won't need faith in heaven, we won't need hope, we'll have it, but love will remain. Love is indestructible. Love is indestructible. And in fact, if you look at the Greek, the very last word Paul uses is love in this section, because love has the final word. See, this is the Christian vision. You're not going to get it anywhere else. This is the Christian vision, which is love has the final word. The Bible says that God is love. God is love. That God is not just some solitary being staring at the wall, but God in God's triune splendor, Father, Son, and Spirit, look face to face in in this loving intimacy. And the story of the Bible is that we've been invited into that intimacy. It's so beautiful. Jonathan Edwards writes, God is the fountain of love, and therefore the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love. It's a place where we will not be evaporated, where we will not be impersonal and disappear. It's a place where we'll be seen, we'll be known, and we'll be embraced by a love that will transform us forever. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you've got to get a hold of this. I don't know where else you're looking, but I want to tell you, this is the only place, when you understand what the Bible says, it's the only place where you're going to find what you're looking for. You know you want unconditional love you're not gonna find it anywhere else. The face that made you invites you into that loving gaze that you've been longing for your whole life. That face that made you wants to turn on you and look at you, and if you see that face and that face sees you, your life will never be the same. You know, the greatest loves in the world can't compare to this love that God has and wants to give. You know, It's like comparing an oil rag with a wedding dress. It's like comparing a Hot Wheel with a real Ferrari. It's like looking at a T-ball team and, and saying, well, it, you know, let's compare that with the World Series. There's no comparison. All the loves we're looking for don't come close to this love we were made for and we, and we hunger for it and we desire it and which God has made possible in and through Jesus Christ. This is what heaven is. It's a world of our mature, strong, vibrant humanity living in unstoppable love. It's beautiful. It is so beautiful. And right now, we can begin entering in to that world every time we love. Every time we love, we experience the one thing that will not fall apart, the one thing that is unstoppable. Every time we love others and we treat them not as objects but as faces, we begin to speak the language of heaven. We give a glimpse to the world of the world that is coming a world that will not fall apart. Love is not only a power. Love has a name. God in Jesus Christ has made the face of God available, has made the face of God available. Taking on the the form of a servant, Christ plunged himself into this sin-sick world. He took on our brokenness and our sin, and he made it possible for us to experience the face of God. And weekly we come together and we practice the bread and the cup which symbolize this great sacrifice of the one who has given us the presence of God. If you've never ever experienced the face of God and you want to know this God, during this time I want to invite you to receive these elements as a statement of faith. I want to know you, God. I want to know what you've done for me in Jesus. I want to walk with you.